0: Welcome back to Dare to Feel. I'm your host, Alexandra Roxo, creative artist, best-selling author of Fuck Like a Goddess, transformational and spiritual mentor and coach. This series is based on my book, Dare to Feel. In each episode, we'll deepen into topics around intimacy, relationship, spirituality, healing, and beyond. In today's episode, we're speaking with Mirabai star about heartbreak as a portal to the Divine, about modern spirituality, the Divine Feminine, how we can keep our hearts open at this time on this planet, and how fierceness and tenderness are essential to this world right now. Enjoy. Hi, everybody. I am very excited to have Mirabai Starr here with us today. So Mirabai Starr is an award-winning author of creative nonfiction and contemporary translations of sacred literature. She taught philosophy and world religions at the University of New Mexico Taos for 20 years, and now teaches and speaks internationally on contemplative practice and interspiritual dialogue. A certified bereavement counselor, Mirabai helps mourners harness the transformational power of loss. Her latest book, Wild Mercy, Living the Fierce and Tender Wisdom of the Women Mystics, was named one of the best books of 2019. She lives with her extended family in the mountains of northern New Mexico. Welcome, Mirabai. So great to have you. Thank you, Alexandra. Thanks for inviting me. Yes, well, I've been such a fan of your work for years, and I think from reading Wild Mercy, and I don't know how that came into my into my world necessarily, but when I read it, I just felt like I had a kindred spirit, or I was seen. I felt seen by your work, which. Um, I think as a fellow writer and artist is something that I long to give everyone who comes across my path too is that feeling of belonging of like, oh my gosh, yeah, me too. So um, thank you for that book. I've spoken to so many women who have said that it has deeply touched them. I've bought copies of it for many other women in my life as well.
1: Thank you so much. I love hearing that it speaks to someone like you and and so many of you who who are telling me that very thing, like you're
0: you're singing my song. Mm. It's very gratifying. yeah, yeah. So, I wanted to start kind of in the meat of things um, and ask about how heartbreak and loss is an entry point point or an invitation into spirituality. Um, and how it becomes an ongoing part of a spiritual practice. Being that you speak to heartbreak, loss, and grief, and not only Wild Mercy but other works of yours, um, I, I found such relief at the permission to let that be an opening into greater practice. So I would love to hear Uh, You speak on that. Oh, thank you,
1: Alexandra. I'm so glad that that's an important question for you. And I think probably for a lot of your listeners, how heartbreak becomes a portal to a direct encounter with the sacred. I mean, I didn't design it that way. I don't love that it that it seems to work that way. <laughs> but it does. And I think our culture just conditions us to get away from painful and uncomfortable feelings as quickly as possible. And let's, you know, fill the emptiness with more stuff or substances or whatever we can do to not feel our feelings. Um, but I know that's just right up your alley. So by the minute we actually do show up for great heartbreak, we usually it doesn't take long to detect that fragrance of of the holy, of the sacred, emanating from the very fire of what it is that you're going through. Mm. And we turn toward it and lean into that flame in a way, you know, it's it's scary. It's of course you're gonna want to get away from it. But when we actually turn toward it, we often discover that like those of us on a spiritual path anyway that that which we have been seeking is actually right there more than it more than it ever has been sitting on the cushion or in the yoga studio or you know doing the the mantra practice it's mm-hmm. i don't know if any of you do things like that but but I sure did my whole life really from the time I was a teenager and and there's nothing like a shattering loss to catapult you into that very territory of the holy mystery, which is love, as it turns out. So if there are rewards. <laughs> if you don't do it for the reward, turn toward your pain. But once, and I, and it's not like I'm trying to be glib, you know, like, yeah, your child died. Now all you have to do is be present and you'll get the spiritual goodies. That's not at all what I'm saying. Yeah. You know, but what I am saying is there is, and you use the language too, Alexander, there's an invitation in profound grief. Um, And it's an invitation that I think our hearts have been waiting for always.
0: Yeah.
1: I hope I'm not offending anybody who's going through a shattering loss right now. Um, I myself have, have been through some shattering
0: losses, one in particular. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's important to be able to talk about this regardless. I think you know, honoring what people are going through. But also, I think you hold a fierce reminder of, yes, I don't know what you're going through, or I can't, I can't minimize it. But there's, I'm still going to hold this knowing of that there's something deeper here. I think that's brave. um, Instead of being in the just, I'm really sorry for your loss, obviously, in a greater context of you being in a a teacher and an author, not in a social context at a dinner party or something, (laughs) Um, which would be a very different scenario. Um, Do you think that as we go through life and we experience heartbreaks, losses to varying degrees and levels of intensity, that if we say no to turning towards them openly, and if we instead push them away with Work, drugs, alcohol, um, avoidance, numbing, etc. Do you think that we'll keep having the invitation from life um, to, like, do you think, like, the lessons will keep coming for us to find the courage to one day turn towards them? Or do you think there are people or, uh, or souls that are incarnate that maybe this lifetime won't turn towards the divinity within that heartbreak or loss. Just curious how it is for different people. Somebody listening may say, Oh hell no, I'm not gonna, I can't cope with this loss. There's no way. and and I'm just, yeah, I'm curious if eventually life will kind of catch you and ask you to open or if it's a real sovereign choice that we have.
1: Oh, that's such an interesting question. Nobody's ever asked me that before. I love it. Okay. First, my first response is I don't want to blame the victim in any way. So if you're someone who has experienced great loss, and I know you don't either, Alexandra, you're so, you're so um, feminine in that way and that invitational way of honoring everybody exactly where they are. If you've experienced great loss and you're like, "Hell no, I bow to you. I totally get it and you're not missing the train." Yeah. Um as you say, Alexandra, another train is likely to come. Yeah. You know, it's almost impossible to to move through the landscape of this life without encountering um great great loss and and grief. There are people who who don't seem to have any great losses. It's a, miraculous to me because I've had so many, but um that it does sometimes happen that it's a light, a light touch of, of loss in this lifetime. Or as you say, maybe you have experienced something like that and you're just like, no, that is not for me. I am not interested in finding God in the catastrophe mm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. So no judgment. And yes, I agree with you that the invitations are likely to continue coming. And so You just get on the next train if you're ready. And sometimes it's not even a matter of readiness. I guess at this point, because we're talking theoretically, and we're women and I want to embody it, I will name my great loss, which is the loss of a child. So my daughter Jenny died when she was 14 in a car accident. I was 40, and that was 21 years ago. And um, that was... The time that I most, the, the loss, of course, it was in a completely different universe of my other losses. The loss of a boyfriend, loss of a dad, loss of dear friends. Um, but that one was a completely different kind of species of soul um, experience. And, and I had this sense early on as a mother that I, ch- I can't turn away because it's my child. Like I have to be completely present with this experience, as an act of devotion to my daughter, not to like prove myself spiritually, I, I could endure it, I could find God in, the, in this fire of loss, or, you know, anything that was a decision, I mean, there was a decision, there was agency, as you said, sovereignty, I was able to make that choice as opposed to making a different choice, and I had plenty of other options. Like one of Jenny's friends was a psychiatrist. Within the first 24 hours, he was offering me, you know, tranquilizers or whatever they give you, I don't know, something to numb me. And um, I knew, my soul knew, don't turn away, be with Jenny. And being with Jenny meant being with my unbearable anguish. And so it was a soul directive, I guess, is what I'm saying.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And, and I think
0: sometimes we have, it's a choiceless choice. Yeah. Do you feel like there were certain tools or practices that you yourself on your heroine's journey, your soul's journey, had um, worked with and accumulated before meeting that moment in life that particularly held you and supported you in the most kind of divinely orchestrated way, or did they sort of fly out the window because everything crashed down? Curious about that one.
1: Ah, that's such an insightful question, Alexandra. Both. I mean, that's the thing. The thing about the broken open heart is it becomes boundless, and it can hold these seemingly contradictory realities, like it's too much and I can meet it. Both were true uh, for me. Um, all my spiritual practices, all my beliefs, went out the window, as you say. None of them could hold up under the onslaught of that of that experience um, of of shattering loss. It all exploded in a way, um, and I didn't believe anything anymore. And. Yet I had been steeped in teachings about unknowing, Mm -hmm. about the power of being in the cloud of unknowing and to use the Christian mystical terminology that I was I was familiar with. Because so when Jenny died, the day Jenny died, my first book came out Mm -hmm. and my first book happened to be a translation of Dark Night of the Soul by the 16th century Spanish mystic St. John of the Cross. And I'm Jewish, but I I love the Christian mystics, especially the Spanish mystics, who are so fiery and and juicy and sensual, and you know, and were infused with Judaism and Sufism because Spain at that time was kind of a confluence of of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. So um, I just finished this translation; it had just come out. Literally, the day Jenny died, and so there was this this like coming together, this braiding of these two experiences—the most profound source of suffering I could ever imagine—and then this book, this these teachings about the transformational power of of great suffering. Hmm. So, what Jonathan Cross's thesis is really is that when we enter the dark nights of our soul. souls, what's happening is we're being stripped of all our ideas about the divine, about the meaning of life, about about the reality. It's just all being taken from us and this is a mark of spiritual maturity, he says. So I didn't give a shit about being mature spiritually or any other way. I didn't care about my growth or evolution. I just wanted my baby back. But I did know enough um to know that I knew nothing <laughs> and that that was okay. So I was able to be in the radical unknowing. And so maybe that was a spiritual that was a tool in my toolbox that helped me meet the moment, not endure, not heal, not survive, not, it, none of that, but to meet the moment, the, the impossible moment of my child's death. No. And I did a lot. I had done a lot of sitting, silent sitting practice meditation. I'd done a lot of meditation over the years. And, you know, those of you who are meditators know that when you hang out inside yourself like that for long enough, you learn to not believe everything you think. You know that, no, as Rilke says, no feeling is final. Although I knew I would grieve for the rest of my life, and I have, and I do. But that it, I also... And bigger now, and and that vastness invites other experiences too, that are as beautiful as Jenny's death is terrible.
0: Mm. Wow! Yes, thank you so much. What a beautiful answer to that question. Um, you know, there's something that I read in um, Lama Sultram's book. I think it was Women of Wisdom or Wisdom Rising. And she talks about that in the Vajrayana uh, lineage that she's a part of that there's this kind of notion, and I'm paraphrasing, of if you take on a lot of heavy karma this life, then it's because you're desiring awakening and because there's a greater opportunity for in Buddhism, it would be you know, enlightenment, but for awakening this lifetime. And I always, there was something liberating to me about reading that and going, okay, right, from a different perspective, pre incarnation, perhaps there is a divine design to um, the type of experiences of suffering that we opt into if we're, if we're using that belief system. Right. Um, and, and I'm curious for you if not to glorify our suffering or to kind of pedestalize ourselves for going through hard things, but I'm curious on the spiritual kind of more ideological level for you, if you've had any of those beliefs come through you about your own soul's journey, um, this lifetime, or if you've considered that at all.
1: Hmm. I certainly haven't. I've written about it. Okay. Um, so I wrote a book. It took me, it took me many years, but I did write a memoir about the coinciding of Jenny's death with with the release of this book, Dark Night of the Soul, which was the first of, you know, more than a dozen books now, but that was the beginning. Um, and and I, I have a chapter called Believing Everything, where I try on all the beliefs, like what happens after someone dies and what, you know, what's the purpose, if any. And I concluded that they're all true. But and then in another part of that chapter, or it might have even been a, yeah, I think it was another part of that chapter, um, I talk about, Meeting with a Tibetan Lama. So, by the way, Sultram is is a friend of mine, Lama Sultram, and she also lost a child, and it's one of the things that unites us. So, anyone who talks about grief and loss who's actually been through something like that, I listen. I can. I feel like I can trust them. It's people who hold forth about the spiritual purpose of loss you know, and, and haven't really experienced a shattering loss. I'm not just saying the death of a child is like the top of the heap, um, but it's, you know, it's certainly, I trust someone who has been through that um, to talk about grief. But in this, in this section, I tell the story about, so I'm fluent in Spanish. I'm a translator of the Spanish mystics. I grew up on and off in Mexico, lived in Spain. And so um, I was the, inter- this was after Jenny died, maybe two years later, I was the interpreter for a Tibetan Lama who lived in Mexico, taught in Mexico, and his translator is Mexican. So they came to Taos, where I lived, Taos, New Mexico, and they were give. He was giving a teaching. His translator was translating it Tibetan into Spanish, and I was translating the Spanish into English for this teaching here in Taos. And as a thank you, he offered me, you know, some time to sit with with the Lama and ask anything or any questions I might have. So of course my only question at this point burn at two years in burning in my heart was um, what you know what was the purpose of Jenny's death and what am I supposed to do with this and and he said very simply, you did something terrible in another lifetime and that's why this happened to you. And I was like, "Wait, wait, are you sure? Like, can, can I give you some other options I, about I chose. I feel like maybe I chose this lifetime to have this steep and narrow path to go through the fiery gate of this experience and other losses, but this one in particular to to wake up, you know, or just carry the karma of other people. or Can I? How about this? How about that? You know? And he, it was like, "Nope, you just you were you did something evil." This is your punishment. And so I I kept rephrasing it because we were going through three languages. Are you sure that I did something there? Yep. So, yeah. Can you imagine saying that to a grieving mother? I mean, I know there are cultural realities in play, but um, so that's why I'm so happy that you asked this question because my soul felt like, not like I chose this exactly. If I did, it was like, I take it back. That was stupid. I don't. I'm gonna unmake that choice. But there's no undoing reality. There's only, as my friend Richard Rohr says, forgiving mm-hmm. reality. And so this is the way it is. And maybe you know, maybe my soul said, "Okay, I in this life, I'm gonna meet great pain and great loss." Uh, again, I, I it wasn't just Jenny's death, but that was the most
0: significant. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. What do you think, Alexandra? So I, it's a good question. I mean, I think that the, as I've studied Tibetan Buddhism and I, you know, went to Nepal and India and I went with to Nepal with, with my friends Moon and Sa, who I think you know a little bit about oh, them. Oh, no wonder. And we yeah. sat in, in these magnificent caves and we went to the monastery and we sat with, you know, we got to to be with Lama Zopa Rinpoche before his passing recently. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there was so much yeah. and there is so much. And I've studied with Lama Sultram a few times too. And there's so much about the Tibetan Buddhism that I, I really resonate with. And there felt like there was this still very kind of patriarchal is the word that comes to mind (laughs) um and also uh, this patriarchal kind of approach and also it reminded me of catholicism in a way when i was there of this kind of repentance and and if i say this many mantras i will be able to kind of erase this much karma which reminded me a lot of like if you say this many hail marys you'll repent your sins. And so something about that was hard for me to fully drop into as like a real feminine practitioner of love. And, um, and then there are things about that tradition lineage philosophy that really do resonate. But I do find hearing you (laughs) say that he said that to you, I want to protect you. Like go back in and (laughs) and say, hey, you know, and I also just really admire that that's a culture's understanding of something and that it's a belief system that, again, a group of people decided upon and that uh, the same in Christianity that there are people hundreds of years ago that decided on certain spiritual principles that we now adhere to. And there were, you know, a group of men probably sitting in a room going, hey, like, let's decide this or let's write this down. So I like that you kind of came back to your heart around it and asking what was true for you. And I think that's part of a lot of where we are spiritually right now on a collective level or where we could um, move into is our own Intuition and, and connecting with our own hearts instead of outsourcing our power to others. Mm. Um, I, I hope for that. And it's also confusing. Even that is confusing because structure is really supportive. And when you have a bunch of spiritual people all deciding what's their truth, it can get kind of chaotic. <laughs> uh, so... Yeah, I think there's obviously wisdom to both. Like there's so much wisdom in different lineages and teachers and mystics. And, and then there are these little places where things do feel a bit, um, archaic or outdated or like they were decided from a perspective that didn't really honor the full experience, especially of women or um, indigenous peoples or anyone who was outside of a particular Demographic. So, anyway, long tangent on that. <laughs> Definitely something I think about a lot.
1: Oh my gosh, Alexandra, I just hung on every word. I see why Sa connected us. You are, I love you. <laughs> Everything you're saying is so eloquent and so beautiful and so aligned with my heart and mind and so, so ripe for this time that we're in. I agree. I love how you called those religious structures supportive. Like I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but I do want to throw out that old stinky cold gray bathwater. Right. It is just time. Yeah. And so there's this huge movement of of people that call themselves spiritual but not religious or don't call themselves anything, but are allergic to religiosity. And I think that's an evolutionary i don't know trajectory that we're on but but how do we avoid the chaos or maybe we just are going to be in chaos but you're so right a group of dudes in every single religion determined what the the values are and the goals are of each of those spiritual spaces and they're culturally connected and they you know they had their value but most of them Every single one of the religions I know of, even the ones that we might think of as an alternative, like, okay, we've been hating on the Judeo-Christian traditions for a long time. My parents certainly rejected, they were, Jew, you know, non-religious Jews, rejected all of that. They rejected their ancestral Judaism. They feared Christianity because Christians have been terrible to choose. Um, in Islam, you know, people love to, to talk about how patriarchal Islam is, although, the Prophet Muhammad did see that para- say that paradise lies at the feet of women, um, and uh, and other ways that he supported women that Fox News doesn't tell us about. But anyway, yeah. Yeah. the point is the the ones we think of as alternative, like Buddhism and Hinduism, um, even Sufism, native traditions, indigenous traditions, they are all steeped in these patriarchal models where men have bossed women around for centuries. So how do we reclaim the jewels at the heart? Of these great wisdom ways, uh, and and jettison, get just just say no. A fierce feminine no to the poison. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I like the baby with the bathwater analogy. Well, though I have looked up the origin of that, and it's it's a funny um, origin yeah. story for that expression. Um, but I definitely it was one that that I heard kind of growing up or whatever, and. Anyway, everyone can Google that and you can read about it. And they were really throwing out babies at some <laughs> <I know>.
1: point. <laughs> um, oh my God, I'm going to stop using that.
0: I know, but it's, it's, it's funny. We have so many of these words and phrases in our culture that um, get passed down. You know, I have so many that my mom just, you know, passed down to me. And I sometimes say them out loud to my partner. And I'm like, that's so a Southern thing that my mom said, you know, and it just gets passed down. Anyway, but the the, the wisdom in, in what you said around, um, let's not throw all of it out. I think that that's something that I, I'm seeing that there's a little bit of a, a potential in the chaos of having no structure and people just creating the spiritual traditions and, and, um, living into all of it in a way that doesn't have a bit of a root. I feel that that chaotic energy, um, I feel into a little bit of danger around that. Not, not, you know, nothing that more kind of ideologically versus, um, actually physical danger. Um, and, I it's taken me I think 20 years from when I first I started rejecting Christianity after growing up in the south. It's taken me 20 years to now be able to differentiate and appreciate the wisdom in any of those traditions and to be able to go to India and sit and not necessarily get triggered in the same way about let's say covering myself or you know a man not speaking to me directly because I'm a woman, etc. As 15 years ago, that would have all upset me greatly. At this point, I I have the the space inside to differentiate. But I think that's, that for me, that's, that's been a long journey. And so I think for a lot of people, it's kind of like throwing it all out, um, which throws out the, the structure that kind of holds all of that potential energy. And, um, one place that I've felt that, and I felt frustrated around it has been like Maybe I shouldn't say this out loud. <laughs> I don't want to sound judgy about it, but it has been in the psychedelic movement that's emerged and how a lot of people are using psychedelics to connect with God, the divine. And there's this, again, a structureless space. Um, in my opinion, you guys, this is my opinion. I, I have a lot of love and reverence towards the tools that we can use to connect deeply with the secret and heal and, I do feel like there's just, there's, there's a, an importance in structure and in containment and in ritual and, um, in having a place and, and it's to, to deepen in a way. So I'm curious collectively, This is a bit of a tangent, but I'm curious collectively where we'll go, right? It's like the pendulum swung and now we're all free in the spiritual space. And obviously there's many people that are still within set traditions, but there's a lot of people that are operating kind of in the space of free, trying all these different things. And, um, I'm curious where we'll land in the next few years or 50 years or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love the question. I like you. I live in this question
1: a, a lot, and and I just I think that the danger that you're speaking of is consumerism, commercialism, yes, um, capitalism, yes, and that in the absence of certain kinds of religious structures, in the spiritual arena, people use you know w- without a, a dude to boss us around, we we go to money. Right. And, and material gain and fame and and I think it's one of the reasons I love I love your energy, Alexandra, is you're so you know, you're you're fierce and you're smart and you're accomplished and you've got a voice, but you have such tenderness too. And that is the key is and though these are to me the feminine qualities. Fierce truth telling with tenderness, hospitality of heart, Mm. you know, this kind of loving kindness with which you lead. Mm. And so we need to look for leaders who aren't bossy. You can lead without being a patriarch, right? You can lead the way you lead, which is with, with a great, greatness of heart and a deep listening. Yeah. So look for your leaders in these spiritual spaces. They're going to be peers. They're not going to act like they're better than you, but they have a quality of leadership that is rooted. Yeah. And these are the these are our new our new um sages and, and prophets.
0: I love that. Thank you. And thank you for 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 seeing me in that way. And I feel the same about you and your work. And there's a humility that and I, I've I definitely it hasn't always been there with me, I think, but or anybody who sort of gets like a little taste of what it is to have power or to be kind of known or that kind of thing. But what I've found in the people that I most admire is um, feeling the rooted humility that they hold, and I don't mean humble in the sort of like ad abdication of power or self-deprecation or diminishing, um, one's, one's success or love or, or practice or whatever. But there's a certain tone, um, that I do feel is emerging in some of the voices who are like, I'm here and I'm not trying to prove myself, I have potentially in the past done so, um, but I'm here now operating, like you said, with the fierceness and the, and the tenderness simultaneously. And I guess that would lead me into a question that I have about your take on what it mean, what the divine feminine is to you, because I'm, I first discovered that languaging when I was about 18 and I, I was living in Italy and I met this meditation group there, and and it changed. They changed my life. And I was reading autobiography of a yogi by Yogananda back then, and had just read Be Here Now. My life was kind of bursting at the seams with uh, of the awareness and the um, and the the feelings seen by those teachings. And I had this kind of clarity at that time. I remember it very vividly that I was here to be in service of the divine feminines. Re-emergence into the collective, and I was, you know, I was, I was young. Maybe I was twenty. Maybe I was not eighteen. Maybe I was twenty. And since then, I've held that thread. And then it became kind of popular for people in the last five years to use the languaging around divine feminine. And, and I thought, oh, gosh, now am I affiliated with something that is actually very different than this root that I, that I discovered, um, back 20 years ago. So I'm curious for you, what's the journey that you feel with claiming the languaging around the divine feminine? What does divine feminine mean to you? And also, how do you feel it? being uh, portrayed in the collective. So multifaceted question.
1: Wow. Yeah. Good question. And I, yeah, I'm I'm like you, I feel a little cringy when I am associated with any kind of particular packaging of the great mystery. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I guess I overcome My impulse to say, no, I don't want to be associated with the goddess movement or, you know, something like you say, I don't want to sound judgy, but um, when that feeling arises, it's like, it's okay, Mirabai, because the important thing is whatever is emerging in the collective right now is an antidote to the poison of the patriarchy. You know, V, formerly known as Eve Ensler, says, people tell me I shouldn't use the word patriarchy anymore. I should use dominant culture. Right. Fuck that. <laughs> you know, it's, it's the patri- let's call it what it is. It's the patriarchy, and it has done and continues to do great harm to women, to men, to people of all genders, and to our planet, to our beloved Mother Earth. So if this emerging consciousness around reclaiming The sacred in feminine form is an actual antidote to the poison, to the toxicity that has dominated the religious arena and therefore the planet itself. Then I don't care what who else is doing their thing in their sandbox. It's really vital that we do this. Do I think God with a capital G um, A exists? I'm not sure. Maybe um, B has a gender. No, of course. not. I can't tell you, Alexandra, how many people when I've given talks, especially when I was on on tour with Wild Mercy and some well-meaning, progressive, spiritual white dude would inevitably stand up with the mic. This is when I was still taking questions. So I, I don't do that anymore um, and say, but nearby, do you, you know, God? No, they wouldn't even ask. They would just mansplain me. God does not have a gender. Ultimate reality is beyond masculine and feminine. Aren't you just, or, or they would say, aren't you just now skewing things in the other direction? Please. So both of those questions are, our statements are bullshit because there is, first of all, there's no way with thousands of years of patriarchal dominance that a few women standing up and saying, what if God is goddess is going to skew things in the opposite direction. And besides, even if it did, yay. And also, of course I know that that ultimate reality is beyond gender, but there is a great value in lifting the feminine right now and, and shining light through that prism that casts such goodness in all directions. Mm. These qualities that live in all of us, women, men, non-gendered people. Yeah, or non-binary people, qualities of loving kindness and and mercy. Let's reclaim that one from the Christians. Tenderness, all these words, but also ferocity and truth telling and protectiveness and and embodiment, mm-hmm. embodiments. Yeah. This is what we need because so much. And I'm almost done. Sorry, I'm no, going, keep going. I love me. it. But, one of the the issues about a masculine dominated spirituality is that it's been so much about checking out of human experience, of a particularly of bodily experience. That's the domain of the feminine. It's messy. It's gross. It's unpredictable.
0: Yeah.
1: It's emotional. It's feeling based. It's not objectively true. It's, you know, whatever. And Boydman couldn't be president because on her period she'd make, you know, emotional decisions. Whatever. This is what has to shift. We're returning through this feminine lens to reclaiming the body as holy and our ordinary everyday experience as the domain of the sacred. The masculine paradigm has taught us to check out, transcend, this world as illusion and, and, and dangerous
0: actually. Yeah. Yes. And I'm like, I'm in full agreement with everything you said. And I also live by all of that (laughs) and have for a long time. I can say that very honestly, that I also discovered that piece that you just mentioned when I was going deep into my own yogic study um, in my early twenties and going, wait a minute, but I still have to leave my body in a sense. And I still have to be clean and I still have to, um, kind of escape my emotionality and my sexuality. And, uh, that for me, I just knew deeply, deeply within that, that was not my path this life, but I was very confused and it's been an ongoing process, even going to India and going to Nepal, it's like I still uh, practiced a lot of sitting meditation and a part of me would be like, but Alexandra, this isn't it for you, this life. <laughs> you know, like there's there's more, there's more, there's more. Um, and I've made it a big part of my own personal practice and, and life's work with other women. And so I also agree with you of, of, of that that's, Regardless of how we how we phrase divine feminine goddess uh, whatever, that there is an essential healing and movement that is necessary how we get there and how we frame it like yes there'll be a million takes a million different people's opinions on it but i think that those of us who feel that deeply that conviction deeply inside of us that we know that there's something that needs to shift like that's what that's what i care about too not not the sort of semantics of a, a potential movement or um, the language around it. And um, so I appreciate you just phrasing that. And And I've also made that decision of like, yeah, so maybe different people call goddess or divine feminine, maybe they have a different context around that or a different definition than me. But does that mean that I want to just abandon that terminology just because there's some capitalism or consumerism or superficiality that feels very present? is that cause for me to release something that's been important to me for many, many years? And I'm like,
1: no. <laughs> you know, what's interesting and then I'll stop is the, it's to me, the patriarchy that's driving women to capitalize on the divine feminine, right? It's the, it's the patriarchy in them or in right. us. Cause I'm, I'm not going to deny that. I have some, you know, that the patriarchy is alive and well in me too. But I, at least I try to uncover the shadow. But yeah, I think it's the patriarchal system that is driving women to capitalize
0: on on something like that. Yeah, that's a great question, and this is a little bit more of a kind of a practitioner to practitioner, author to author question. So for everyone listening who maybe is working within a spiritual space or a space of wellness or yoga or something like that. Um, I know that there can emerge from me and also in some of my peers, like a great conversation about how do we make this a part of our job where we're getting paid without it coming from that kind of patriarchal capitalist, um, mindset. And I'm curious how that resonates for you because it is part of your job public. I mean, it is your job publicly. You're a teacher, you're an author, you're leading workshops and retreats. How did, how do you work with that conversation within yourself?
1: Mm. Oh, interesting, important question. Um, right. So, you know, often I grew up at Lama foundation, which is the place where Ramdas wrote, be here now. And so I grew up in a spiritual community and associated with various spiritual traditions. and the the kind of um, going theme was you don't mix money and the Dharma. Don't mix money and the Dharma. spirituality. you should never charge for healing, healings, or any kind of spiritual work. Um, and I grew up with that value. and And then I found myself in life writing and teaching and doing workshops and retreats, like you say. And it's like, now what? You know, now what? And I was struggling. And my husband, who's quite a bit older than I am, is a carpenter. And we had five girls between us. And, you know, he was supporting us with his body. And it was like, wait, there's something wrong with this picture. I have several college degrees. You know, I'm writing these books. I'm teaching in all these spaces. This is not, this doesn't make sense. And so... I had to really reckon with that conditioning. In fact, I spoke to Ramdas, and this was toward the end of his life. And I said, "You know, I know you're not supposed to mix money in the Dharma, but this is this picture isn't working anymore." And he was like, "No, that's not what I said. I mean, that's I said I feel like I got this message from you." And he's like, "No, you've got to you've got to be compensated for what you do in in traditional cultures. The shamans and the healers and the you know the the people who lead rituals." are taken care of by the community. Yeah. It's not like they do it for free. Of course they, they're taken care of. They can't do it. You've got to refill the well. You have nothing to give. So your question, Alexandra, is if it is true that we have every right and reason to be compensated generously for offering the depths of our souls and our bodies to this to this work of awakening, it takes everything, right? Everything that we are, then so, if we have if we need to be lo- lovingly lushly compensated, when I say lush, I'm talking about like that feminine feeling of enoughness, mm. then how do we do it without buying in to that patriarchal structure of capitalism that has done such harm to us, to our sisters, and to our mother the earth?
0: Yeah.
1: our siblings, I should say, to all of creation. You know, I think it's just a constant. Process of discernment. It's that humility you were talking about. Humility doesn't mean self-deprecation. Yeah. It means leaning in to listen and being willing to look at what is true. I remember a few months ago, um, I was talking to my mom about something. She's 88 about an, some kind of affiliate arrangement I was making and how much money I could make by su- supporting somebody else. And she was like, God, like when it." you know, what's enough, Mirabai? She wasn't accusing me because she absolutely supports everything I do. But she was interested in asking the question about when is it actually enough? When are you receiving enough to refill the cup that you so generously offer to this world? And when are you veering over into, huh, I could make, you know, X amount there and I could buy, you know, what? Mm-hmm. Buy what? Right, right. <laughs> I mean, we have a bunch of kids, grandkids who are always in crisis and in any need, like an endless. It's like a, a black hole of need in our family. <laughs> but still, it was a great and important discernment to me.
0: Yeah, I love that question too, and I and I don't make a lot of money, by the way.
1: I, by the way, I just have to give that disclaimer. I don't make a lot of money. Well, we it's want just you to so, to so that you can cup. have
0: enough to, to give all those <laughs> grandbabies enough to. Um, but I think it's a, it's a great question. And one thing that I've kind of considered is if you're a person that is desiring to take on great wealth with it comes great responsibility and how do you seed that money seed it into the community seed it into other um people's businesses women women of color you know how do you seed it back into the healing of the earth that is the place that i think is like it's the trickiest because once you have that in your hands it's so seductive and it's like well, there's always going to be something else we want. And, and so that to me, there's like, there's a question and I, that I hold for all people that are accumulating great wealth or desiring great wealth. It's like, it's not necessarily having to become super altruistic or philanthropistic. I don't know if that's a word <laughs> around it, but, <laughs> but it's, but it's. Okay, great. If I'm a person that has some sort of a soul calling to call in millions of dollars this life as a part of my spiritual business, what am I how am I stewarding that wealth into healing and into That's awakening it. and into the earth and and I liberation. Yeah, into yes, liberation. liberation. Yeah. So I I admire people like that. I don't know if that's a part of my karma, this life to be a multimillionaire who like has a bunch of kind of projects and organizations. I'm not sure, but I do know people that I see that that's a part of their karma, this life. And, um, and I, I just, I feel like that's the next step, right? It's like not operating within the more is more because I just want more and there's always something more I want to buy or do, but where where am I using that money, um, and spreading it in this beautiful healing gold upon my community and that kind of thing. And yeah, the spiritual, well, spiritual slash wellness kind of world definitely had, there's a lot, I think, moving and shaking in that realm. And it's a conversation that I have a lot with my friends and peers and partner around what's enough. Yeah. What is enough? And, um, yeah, it's a, it's a big one.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it just depends on the lens we're looking through. If we're looking through the patriarchal lens, nothing is ever going to be enough. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Also, that piece that Ramdas told you um which was a, sounds like it was like a liberation from that old belief around Um, we don't charge for the Dharma, how liberating to hear him say, no, I want you to be compensated for your cup to be filled. Because I think that's also yet another shadow, right? Is like, oh, we have to be sort of that um, mystic with the cup out on the street, gathering a few coins, um, and that that's a badge of honor. And I like that he said something that kind of relieved that old trope or old Belief from you and from us, and in turn, that it's not that black or white anymore, and that that too was probably um, a reaction to an older system, right? That it was like, oh, you're you can't be spiritual or a teacher and be compensated. That that too can expire now.
1: (laughs) Yes. Well that it's just all a matter of recognizing that we belong to each other. Yeah. We belong to the earth. Yeah. You know, so it's a domination model of power, you know, money and power and, and domination. Or it's we are one interconnected web of being. And and therefore, whatever I can do to, to lift and mend, I will do it.
0: Yeah. So coming back into the as we, as we begin to wrap up coming back into the, to the heart and the practice. And, um, I'm curious for you, what are some of the things that help you and that you also advise your students around how to live with an open heart and how to turn towards, suffering in our own personal lives and in the greater collective experience at this time where people may experience some existential fear, angst, anxiety about politics, climate change, um, racial relations, really everything. <laughs> and um, and how do you advise uh, yourself and your students and us to have the courage to keep our hearts open now.
1: Mm, Such a beautiful and important question, Alexandra. And I know you ask yourself that question and each other and have these conversations. That's one of the ways to do it is to keep that conversation going with your various communities, you know, to ask each other that question. My friend, Stephen Levine, the late great, I don't know, teacher of, of death and dying wisdom, to, called it keeping your heart open in hell. How do we keep our hearts open in hell? We can't do it alone. That's part of this whole reclaiming of feminine. The feminine wisdom is that the the masculine way is like the lone prophet charging forth to f- save the world or something, and and the feminine way is we belong to each other. Look around, who's got the The elixir you need in this moment to keep going with hope and and to keep your your heart open when it feels like closing in the face of such catastrophic conditions, as you say, with the climate, with racial relations, with politics. oh my God, you know we're we're getting we're moving toward the next presidential election, and it's scary and. How how do we stay present? We and resource ourselves and each other. We we have to do it together. So look around and see where that that spark is that's going to jump jumpstart your your lagging engine when you just feel overwhelmed by it all. And to keep doing things that fill your joy cup. You know, it's not selfish to have fun and to eat beautiful food to have good sex, whatever it is, as you know, obviously you teach all of this, these things that re um, reanimate us are vitally needed for our times. Your joy is needed your, and that's what's going to keep your heart
0: soft enough to open. Yes. That's so beautiful. Thank you. Oh, I want to just end our conversation by reading a quote from one of your one of your books and, and then just kind of beginning to wrap up here. Um, that kind of piggybacks off this answer you just gave us. It's not as if falling in love with the divine rescues us from the travails of the human condition. Our partners betray us sometimes and our dead remain dead. It's that keeping the heart open, even in hell makes space for the beloved. It is in the darkest nights of our souls when all we know is that we know nothing, that the presence of the sacred may quietly well up, mingling with our pain and connecting us to a love that will never die from wild mercy. I just love that quote so much. And um, yeah, it just touches my heart so deeply. Thank you. Thank you, Alexander. Yeah. Is there anything else that you feel called to share as we wrap up or um, any other words or pieces that are emerging in your own heart or that you desire to kind of put into the space? Maybe just to go back to
1: where we started, which is with grief and loss as holy ground, you know, and... And just to re-invite you to enter the, that portal of pain with, with a willingness to receive something um, that you cannot maybe imagine now, but that your soul seems to know is there, to, that it detects, and, and that we can grieve together in community. And in fact, that probably is the only way that we can um, find the gold Find the gold that that our souls are yearning for is together. So find your people, connect with them, and, and we'll be able to not only navigate this time of great heartbreak, but transmute that lead into something magnificent.
0: Yes. Thank you. Thank you so much. And that's something that my work... I aim to hold that space for people. I know Sa does, I know Adriana does. Um, and I know you do, and we're all definitely inspired by you and and your teachings and, um, making spaces for people to safely come together and cry and grieve and share held in a way that truly feels, um, safe and nourishing has been a huge part of my work and giving people permission to feel. And that's kind of this podcast's new title and and is Dare to Feel. And it's part of, for me, the invitation into the heart is we have to feel. And the only way we're going to feel that open, beautiful space of love and connection to ourselves in life is if if we feel. And if we allow ourselves to meet that grief and to meet that rage and sorrow and joy (laughs) and pleasure, which we seem as humans a little out of practice sometimes on all of those fronts. (laughs) And, (laughs) and so it's um, yeah, I think it's part of our collective healing at this time. And I, uh, I really, I so appreciate this conversation and your wisdom. I feel like I could just sit and listen to you for so long. And I will by continuing to read your books and experience your work in the world. And I I hope everybody listening, please read uh, Mirabai's work and follow her on Instagram. And she's got retreats. And I noticed you have a new membership. How's that going? Yeah, that's all around grief and and loss. And I'm working with a wonderful partner in her
1: 20s on this project. And it's Flourishing, I'm sorry to say, because there are so many people who are grieving, but right. there's a lot of joy in our, in our community too. A lot of joy in our community. Great. It's such a relief to find each other.
0: Yes. Yes. Beautiful. So please go check out Miramai's work and, um, and tune into her wisdom. It's deeply rooted and practiced. And I think nowadays meeting and finding teachers who really walk the walk and who have been in deep study and practice for decades. You are, I mean, there's, there's, there's a rare, a rarity. Um, there's a, that, that I have such deep reverence for, um, people who are out there who, um, have really been in the path and on the path for a long time and are, generous enough to share that with us um, and uh, you're definitely one of those people so thank you
1: thank you my love it's such a joy to get to talk with you and, and thank you so much for the, the work you're doing in, in not teaching us because that sounds more didactic but modeling and inviting us to feel our feelings and through that wake up and, and through waking up serve It's just a beautiful trajectory that that you're inviting us to enter into with you.
0: Thank Thank you. you. Thank you so much. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in. See you again soon. If this podcast has inspired or moved you, it would mean so much to me if you'd be willing to take 30 seconds to do each or all of the following. From the Dare to Feel profile page on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts, click the follow. Then subscribe to receive notifications of new episodes. While you're there, if you'd be willing to give the podcast a five-star review and share it with a friend, I'd appreciate it so much.